This is the word of God. Um, yeah, we're in Jude. <clears throat> Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme, the, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked away, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also said about these that Enoch, the seventh son from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the, convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their, old sinful, their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.
Robert, would you lead us in prayer before I dive into the Word? Thank you. Father God, we come before you. What a privilege, Lord. What an honor it is to be gathered as one family, um, as saints, only by the blood of your Son, Lord, that you have graciously given us, Lord, withholding your mercy upon us, Lord, mercy and grace that we do not deserve, but by the blood of your Son who lived the life that we couldn't live, we couldn't possibly live, and died the life that we deserve to die, can be reconciled to you, Father. Let, let that uh, truth sink in our hearts deeply and land upon fresh soil this very morning, Lord, and pray for Pastor Mike as he um, brings this heavy message, these, these heavy words that, that you've written, Lord. We ask a special blessing upon him for wisdom and for um, the Spirit to, to work and speak through him this morning, Lord. Pray these things in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you, brother. Hey, you can grab a seat. It's important that everybody here has a bulletin. So if you do not have a bulletin because I'm going to be referencing something during the course of the sermon, raise your hand and want to make sure that you get one. Okay, if you do not have a bulletin. All right. So Pastor Nick's going to, we got a few back here. There's a beautiful young lady in the corner who needs one. My daughter. A couple handsome, what, middle-aged men over there, okay, all right, got some people up front. While they're handing out the handouts, let me encourage, let me, as one of your pastors, I want to ask you guys to do two things. Number one, I'm going to send out, if I can figure out how to do it, the Sunday school lesson for the adults. I would love for you to listen to it. I think it'll be super, super helpful for you to be all that God wants you to be, light in darkness. So I'm going to send that out. Would you commit to listening to it? Would you do that? Awesome for the seven of you. Yes, no, hopefully everybody else. And then yesterday I listened, I was uh, in uh, Kalkaska preaching last Sunday. I listened to Pastor Charles' message, and I really want you to listen to that if you missed, like me, last week. It's easy to miss a week and then not listen to a sermon. It's not the same as being here with your family, but it is still getting the word and staying abreast of what God is teaching us. And I have never heard a better handling of those last few verses of Matthew 12 than what Pastor Charles preached. He crushed it uh, by God's grace for his glory. And so I want to encourage you. Would you listen to that as well? If you missed it, it'll be well worth it. Okay. Well, let's dive in. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, Jude verses 3 and 4. Anyone here ever been to Northampton, Massachusetts? If you'd go there, you would find a beautiful stone Gothic cathedral. A church meets there. A church called the First Church of Northampton. If you were to jump on the website for the church, First Church of Northampton, you would find before too long that uh, one of the things that they want you to know is that they are a forerunner uh, among churches in the gay-affirming movement. Uh, they, they basically boast about that. And then if you were to scroll a little bit further, you would find that their current pastor, a woman by the name of Kathy Buteau, uh, is holding up a sign at a pride rally that says, Be you signed God. Now what's crazy is if you kept on scrolling down that website, this church traces its lineage to a certain man that many of you would know as Jonathan Edwards, who was used by God to spark the first great awakening in America. You've heard the message, sinners in the hands of an angry God, but he preached many other messages and many wonderful messages on the love of God, and God used him. You keep on scrolling on this website, you would find that while they're very much okay with making the historical connection to Jonathan Edwards, they very much look down on and even despise the theological connection. A pastor of 20 years ago said this about the truths Edwards preached about. He said, quote, these truths Edwards spoke of are not easy to live with and they no longer move us. His theology is tough to embrace because it is bleak and ungenerous of no great urgency for us today. Now, Edwards, being a son of Adam, was not without his own flaws, but he's arguably the best theologian America's ever produced. Few preached the gospel like Jonathan Edwards, and 
you could write about the love of God like Jonathan Edwards. So my question is, how did the First Church of Northampton go from Edwards' biblical theology to, hey, be you, sign God, which is obviously blasphemy because God never said that. What happened to this church? And the, the, the short answer is this. They failed to heed the warning and command of the book of Jude. We're going to arrive today at the heart of this book, verses 3 and 4. It's a short 25-verse, one-chapter book, and we're going to look at verses 3 and 4, and we're basically, here's, here's a, a title. We're going to look at the what and the why of Jude. But since that's not very snappy, I'm going to put it this way. The title of this message is that we are to contend because there are creepers. Contend, will you say that with me? Sounds weird too, but would you say it? Say it three times real fast. Contend because there are creepers. Contend because there are creepers. Contend because there are creepers. All right, y'all with me? So here we go. The first thing we're going to look at is the what. That's verse three. What is it that not just pastors, but all of us are called to do? This is found in verse three. He says, beloved. Now, that's a reminder of what I hit two weeks ago when I kicked off this series of what he says in the latter part of verse 1, that we are, if you're in Christ, it's because you were called, right? You are beloved, and you are kept. No one can snatch you out of Jesus' hands. As I said that in that message, we are unfathomably loved if we only realized how loved we were at the cost of the cross. That expression, beloved, also reminds us that the call of the book of Jude, as I just said before Ryan read, is a call not just for pastors, but a call for everyone who would call themselves a Christian. So he begins, beloved. And then he says, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. He's saying, you know, basically saying, I just wanted to write a Romans. I just wanted to write an Ephesians. All I want to do is do a Philippians or Colossians. Now, this is Jude, not Paul, but you get the point. I just want to write a letter about our common salvation. I just want to brag on the gospel, boast in the glory of God, and show the sufficiency of Christ. There was the letter that he intended to write, and then there is the letter he actually had to write, right? Something was going on that necessitated, because he loved them so much, him changing course, tacking his sails, and as the Spirit led him, issuing a strong charge and command to these believers, which we know is the book of Jude. And by the way, the, the way it ends in verses 24 and 25, some commentators commentator surmise that he ends with the substance of what he meant to really pontificate about at large. Now to him, who is able to keep you from stumbling, and not just that, to present you faultless before the throne of glory with great joy to the only God, and so on, be glory, majesty, honor, and forever. And I can't wait to get that doxology, but what makes that doxology so rich is what he shares in the rest of this letter. So we get to the next phrase, and he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, when he says that we're to contend for the faith, what is that faith? He's not talking about faith as a verb like I believe. Here he's talking about faith as a noun, the content of what we believe. In other words, it's not my personal faith, but my faith in a body of faith called the truth, the gospel once delivered to the saints, that, the gospel and the word of God, to contend for the gospel, which he says is still being, is still being revealed, does he say that? Or what does he say? Once for all delivered, right? Which means we have a closed canon, right? God is not adding more revelation. He didn't say, well, I forgot to tell you this, and I forgot to tell you this. No, we have a closed canon. And one of the things that you're going to see, we'll, we'll see this in clear colors next week, that false teachers, it says, rely on their dreams, Oh, do you, I got to give you this prophecy God gave me. I got to let you know about this vision God gave me. I got to let you know about this dream God gave me. No, that's what they do to make an end run around the word of God. 
He says, contend. Now, let me, let me transliterate that, that Greek word. In other words, let me pronounce it uh, as it would be written in English with the same pronunciation in the original. Agonizomai. 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 You get the point? We get the word agonize from this Greek word contend. So you should think of blood. You should think of sweat. You should think of tears. And yes, you should think about fighting. Jude wasn't looking to pick a fight, but Jude was not willing to run from a fight that needed to be fought. What kind of uh, husband would there be? What kind of dad would there be if he sees his wife and his children under attack and he would stand by passively? That wouldn't be much of a man, would it? What kind of Christian is it who hears the gospel being attacked, especially, we'll get to this, by people on the inside, and doesn't do anything about it? Not much of a Christian. No, we're to fight, we're to contend. Now listen, we're not to fight like the world fights, right? For Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. But be clear, we are to contend. We are to contend. In fact, he adds a little preposition, agonizomai, epi, meaning full agonizomai, full agonizing is what he says. Doesn't come through in all our English translations. The King James adds it by saying we are to earnestly contend for the faith. The New Century Translation says that we are to contend hard for the faith, but the idea is this is a full orb, fully developed, contending for the faith. Y'all with me? And I think a lot of people have a hard time stomaching that command, don't you? To contend for the faith. And one of the reasons among many is we live in a highly relativistic time. Truth no longer has the definite article, the behind it, the truth. It now has uh, personal pronouns behind it, his truth, my truth, your truth, her truth, right? That's, the, that, that's, that's where we live. And we can, we feel when we graciously, and we ought to be gracious, although you look at the life of Jesus and Paul, there's a few times they were very strong, okay? So don't get it twisted. But we ought to be gracious in talking to people. But we feel sometimes that if we graciously tell somebody that what you're thinking is wrong or what you're feeling is wrong, that actually kind of feels wrong, doesn't it? I shouldn't do that. I violated them somehow. It seems to be the unforgivable sin to tell somebody that what they're thinking or feeling or believing is wrong. And, and I feel that. I feel that pull too. I really do. I, I, I work out, as you guys know, uh, from enough sermon illustrations that uh, I tried to at Powerhouse Gym. And I, first 20 minutes, I try and do a little cardio. And there's this tall, skinny, white guy with long hair um, that I've seen for probably about the last year. And the dude is a free spirit. I kind of respect him. Like, he just, he'll, he'll dance his whole workout. He doesn't care what people think. He's got this long stick kind of doing martial arts stuff. But I've never had a conversation with him. But last week, getting on the elliptical to start off with a little bit of cardio, he's next to me on a bike. And I say, hey, hey how are you doing? And I really just intended to be a quick conversation because I was going to try and get my heart rate on the hill climb program that particular day. But he said, oh, I'm doing great. And he started asking me a lot of questions. So we're getting into, my heart rate's increasing. I'm barely been able to talk. He keeps talking. And he, he, he does have some really cool ink. And one of, like, the highlight of his ink is, is a really beautiful cardinal. So I think, I'll just ask him about that. He'll talk for a while. And he did. And I can continue to work out. And so he goes through this long story about, he's only like 23 now, but when he was 20 years old, he went through open heart surgery. He said it was a very difficult and dark time of his life, especially in recovery. And he remembers in walks after he had his open heart surgery, he would see cardinals all along his walking route. And then one day it hit him and said, ah, my grandmother who, who's passed away, she loves cardinals. Not only do these cardinals remind me of my grandmother, these cardinals are my grandmother. And then he said, and these cardinals, my grandmother's gonna get me through this trial. 
And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. She loves you and loved you, but that's not your grandmother, you know? Um, and probably because my heart rate's racing about 140 beats a second, I didn't say, I just kind of nodded. And there is a time to respond when people say things that are not right. But I do remember that pressure feeling when we talk more, I am going to have to like tell him some things that that's going to reveal that what he believes about life isn't so, right? What he feels, and we feel that, don't we? We feel like, we just feel like we're doing something wrong to tell somebody that what they believe or feel, um, it's just flat out wrong, especially when they're nice, right? Especially when they're sincere, right? We, we bought into this sincerity thing, and uh, the Evangelical Theological Society uh, is, a, is a group of uh, um, professors and theologians who meet. It's, it's a big group, and they've been doing this for years and years. But many years ago, a guy was saying that as long as you're sincere in your belief of Jesus, it doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus. So one guy said, you mean I could believe that Jesus is a sixth century avatar from India and I'd still be saved? And the guy said, yeah, as long as you're sincere about it. See, we have just swallowed so much poison and so many lies that we're afraid to tell somebody, hey, that is wrong. We would add to that this. In the confessing, and I I just want to add right here that I think one one of the people that I think is so strong at, at graciously but clearly saying, but brother, but sister, the Bible actually says is Pastor Charles. I, I, I love meeting, uh, being with him and meeting, because sometimes he'll like, he go places I wasn't even ready to go yet, but he'll go there. And he does so in, in a really wonderful, powerful way, turning people to the truth of God's word. Now, adding to all the relativism that makes us shy to ever suggest that somebody might have something wrong, In the confessing body of Christ, we buy these kinds of platitudes. Platitudes like doctrine divides. The idea being then, so don't don't get hung up on doctrine. Well, doctrine is supposed to divide. Now, to be clear, there's always a half-truth in it. We shouldn't divide over secondary and tertiary matters, but there are certain truths that are worth dividing over, right? Right? In other words, it's a good thing when that division emerges to, to separate the wheat from the tares. Or people say this. Here's another cheap platitude that people peddle about. It goes like this. We need unity more than anything else. Do we really? I think we need truth more than anything else, and then truth creates true unity. But when you have unity among people who actually believe something that's very division, d- d- different, That's not unity, that's just a union. That's like tying two cats together by the tail. See how long that lasts. And then you have this quote that people like to say, no creed but Jesus. You did something right there. You just actually gave me a creed, by the way. We do have creeds. We do have a body of faith once for all delivered to the saints, do we not? Or how about this? You have have this um, relationship and I think we all probably went through a phase where we probably leaned on that cliche a little bit too much. Relationship, not, not what? Not religion. The idea being is there's no rules in our relationship with Jesus. Try that being married or with children or in any, every healthy relationship has boundaries, right? Has rules. So we got to throw that away. And Jude does. He comes along with a frigid, ice cold bucket of water water, and throws it on their kumbaya party. Doesn't he not? not? He's pretty pretty strong. We're we're like, come on, man. Can you just chill out a little bit? Like, hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Just take a sad song and make it better. You know, that's how we are. We want to do that. Not Jude. Not Jude. Nope. He, He won't do that. No. No, no. That's why he couples this command with some other expressions, and then we'll finish point one, that communicate deeper emotion, deeper uh, passion about this matter, because he knows the stakes are so high. Look at these expressions in verse three one more time. I found it necessary, very strong in the Greek, necessary to write appealing, again, another strong expression, appealing to you, 
to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And the tones of those expressions are like kind of twofold, like, you got to do this, coupled with, and man, you can do this. You really can do this. Verses 20 and 23, a few weeks down the road, he'll fill out what it looks like to contend a bit more. But I think we have enough right here, don't you? We're to contend. What's the word, what's the word we get the word contend from? Agonize, epi agonizomai. We are to blood, sweat, and tears for the truth once for all delivered to the saints. Point one, the what? Contend. Now, point two, only two points. This is a bit longer, so stay with me. The why. The why is because of the very present danger of infiltrators. Or the expression he uses here of people who have, what's the word? Crept in, hence the word creepers, that way. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. And by the way, next week, he's going to pull no punches, you heard it as Ryan read it, in describing these false teachers who creep in to congregations and into the body of Christ. But that expression, crept in, has the connotation of sneaking in secretly with an evil intent. John MacArthur says in his commentary that in ancient Greek, uh, extra-biblical Greek, that expression is used in the case of a courtroom uh, of a lawyer who infiltrated the minds of courtroom officials in order to corrupt their thinking. In other words, it's an inside job. Don't we know from history that some of the worst attacks are inside jobs? A school shooter gets inside the school because they are a often student. Or we'll never forget in our lifetime, I would hope, that terrorists can masquerade as travelers, right? Now listen to me. This is important. The greatest danger to the gospel is not from the world, but from those who profess to believe it, but really do not. From those who profess to be part of the body of Christ. Those who preach sermons like I'm doing right now. Those who do podcasts and videos and social media and all the rest. Those who write books and articles and do interviews on major TV uh, stations. Those who teach seminary classes and Sunday school classes. Those who become church members. The Bible calls them false teachers, unflinchingly. And the Bible warns us about this from beginning to end. And as I said, as I just said, such people inevitably become church members somewhere, right? Whether they become formal members or whether they associate with a local church, they do that. They come in, they're winsome. They serve, they might be very hospitable and open up their home. They may come across as immensely compassionate and they begin to have influence. They begin to gain a bit of a following. They're magnetic. They're often very charming. They quote scripture, sometimes ad nauseum. Again, they come with the compassion angle again and again and again. What they say is because they're concerned for people. That's how it often is stated. And they often, going back to relying on their dreams, talk about something God laid on their heart, a vision, a prophecy, something like that. And they are almost, and I've seen this, they're almost hypnotic in the way that became people that begin to listen to them. And I tell you, Again, that, <laughs> that's a false teacher. And the way that their aura, their hypnotic, magnetic countenance causes people to overlook the red flags that were there all the time if they would just look. 
and it's predatory, and God warns us about this sort of thing from start to finish. Now, I'm gonna do something here that I always counsel other preachers not to do, and I never do for myself. And that is, to make a point, you stack a whole bunch of verses on top of it just to really make the point. Actually, I usually encourage other pastors, maybe memorize one or two of those supporting verses and then leave the rest. Now, I'm gonna break that today because I want us to see how imminent, how grave, how frequent this warning about false teachers is from the front to the back, from the beginning from the end, to the end of scripture, okay? And actually, I'm leaving a lot out, but you should have on the back of your bulletin, in lieu of devotionals this week, a list of verses. And with little comment, I just want to read these verses so that we feel the weight, right, of the frequency and the gravity of these warnings of false teachers who will creep in. Ezekiel 13, nine. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. Jeremiah 14, 14, and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. We all know Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And Paul picks up on that in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, where he says, pay a careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Romans 16, 17 through 18, in the context of actually greeting a bunch of people, he stops and he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. We move on to 2 Corinthians 13, 11, 13 through 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Philippians 3, 17 through 19. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world and not according to Christ. Second Timothy, Timothy 4, three through four, you know this one. For the time is coming when the people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Second Peter three fifteen through 17, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you, to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do their other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. First John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And finally, 2 John 10 through 11, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his evil works. And that is just a sample. That was like 1.5 when you're listening to a video. Okay, really fast. But do you see the stack of warnings that he gives us? Do you all see that? Like there's, a, there's, there's a great urgency. 
And Jude only adds to that stack when he says, watch out and contend for the faith because people will creep in. Yeah, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Did he not say that? Amen? But in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus also makes it clear that, but that the gates of hell will prevail against many a church. The first church of Northampton, right? Which is why we have so many warnings. Now, carrying on in the second point. Long ago, designated to this condemnation. Now, what does that mean? I had to dive into that. I was asked about that, and I wasn't quite sure. In the Greek, it literally reads things written about long ago. Written about long ago. In fact, does anybody here have an NIV? That's how it's translated, in other versions as well. That it, it's not translated um, designated, but things written about long ago. So there's two ways to take that expression. The first way is that God wrote about this a long time ago. In other words, God warned us about this a long time ago, and we just read a whole corpus of passages, right, about false teachers who would infiltrate, and he's also saying with that, and be sure of this, if you don't turn for your false teaching, you will not escape the coming judgment, which is overwhelming. We'll look at that next week. The second way to take that expression is that God ordains to use already wicked people, and God makes no one wicked. We are wicked since the fall. He ordains such people to accomplish greater purposes, such as in the case of Pharaoh. Now, are, are both of those true biblically? Yes, but I actually think it's the first one because in verses 17 and 18, again, we'll get there, he says, now remember the predictions of the apostles. People are going to slip in and distort the gospel. So, so it, it's likely that. He is, in other words, again saying, watch out. It's like a parent tells a child before they go off to school or off to the military or something, now watch out because there's going to be people like this. That's what he's doing. He's saying, watch out. There will be people. They were written about a long time ago. And what does he call them? ungodly people. When's the last time you heard somebody use the word ungodly in, in, in everyday usage? I see somebody shaking their head. No, I haven't. And I was listening to Alistair Begg on this, and he said, you know why we don't use the word ungodly today? Because we really don't see too much as ungodly. Right? That would be judgmental. That would be not respecting somebody's opinion and all the rest. Jude has no problem using the word ungodly. We will see later on in this series the word ungodly appear like five times in two or three verses. Of course, as these ungodly people come in, as you would surmise and as I just expounded on, they don't come in looking ungodly on the front end, do they? They creep in. How do they creep in? They look Christian. They speak Christianese. Anybody remember the Texas 7 from 2000, the year 2000? But some of you were like this in 2000. A lot of you, maybe most of you. But the Texas 7 were seven hardcore prisoners at a certain prison in Texas. I can't remember which one. And they listened to, uh, they participated in enough Bible studies in prison to learn enough Christianese to masquerade as Christians. In fact, when they escaped, they played themselves off, off as missionaries, and they, they embedded uh, and found some cover for a time, and I think it was a small little country church. They play loud Christian music amongst their neighbors and all that. And, and those men knew, and by the way, some hardcore criminals there, those men knew that Christians can be very trusting, and sometimes, let's be honest, lack discernment. Oh, you said the word Jesus? That's all you need to know. Sixth century avatar from India? Hey, that's cool. At least you're sincere. Right? Now, these ungodly false teachers who have a mask on, whether they know it or not, profess to hold to a biblical Jesus and a biblical gospel, but they in reality do not. And he ends then by giving two descriptions of the evil things that they do. He says, he says this. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, unnoticed, right? 
because they didn't stick out as a false teacher. It wasn't that they weren't greeted and received, but they weren't noticed as a false teacher. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago written, who were designated for this condemnation, was written about a long time ago, God's saying it's coming down the pike. Ungodly people, now here it is, number one, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Now to pervert is, the root of the word pervert is to take something good, grace, and distort it, right? And to twist it. The root of the word pervert is to twist. And they twist the grace of God into what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. True biblical grace. It's costly, isn't it? Cost the Son of God his life on the cross, the shedding of his blood. True biblical grace at the cost of the cross not only delivers us from the penalty of sin, the wrath of God, which Jesus fully absorbed in his body on the cross, it increasingly, for someone who trusts his finished work, rescues us, does it not, from the power of sin and the practice of sin and the pursuit of sin and increasingly causes us to pursue godliness and holiness. That's exactly what Paul says in Titus 2, 11 through 14, something to the effect of that the grace of God has appeared, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age as God's peculiar people. By the way, does that mark your life? I mean, we're all going to ebb and flow, and I'll, I, I, I get that, but since you confess Christ, is there overall this? A saying no to sin and a yes to righteousness, because that's what true grace does. Can't help it, it's what it does. These false teachers, however, they use grace not to deliver people from the penalty. Maybe they said, oh, it'll save you from the penalty, but not from the power and practice of sin. Rather, they actually twisted grace to use grace to excuse their sin. Look what it says right here. Ungodly people pervert the grace of God into what? Into holiness? What does it say? Sensuality. Now, when you hear the word sensuality, what do you think of? You think of sexual stuff, right? And it predominantly is a word of sexuality, but, but not just that. The, the word literally is sense-uality. In other words, to please your senses. And do we not live in a time where it says, if it feels right, if it seems right, well, guess what? It is right. So you get all these expressions like love is love and, and all the rest. People say this, and li people literally say this. Those passages which seem to say one thing, well, we know better now. You know, we, we've learned some things about the ancient culture. We've learned some, something about the ancient languages. So the things that seem to say what for the church for 1,900 years of thought it said, they, they have it wrong. We have, we have more light now. We know better. That's what people will say. Or people will say stuff like this. Literally, they will say, if Paul knew then what Paul knows now, he never would have written any of those things. Literally. Or people will talk about this nebulous thing called the spirit of Jesus, a.k.a. humanistic love. They'll say the spirit of Jesus actually says that this is okay. Never mind, quite ironically, that it was Jesus who actually, as a member of the God, had inspired the word of God. Like the spirit of Jesus is gonna contradict the scripture of Jesus? How does, how does that work? Which leads to the second way they do evil things in masquerading uh, as, 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 as true pastors and true believers when they're not. And it's, it's almost like this second thing is almost like saying the same thing, only it's doing it from a different angle, if you will. One attacks what Jesus offers, grace. The other attacks is who Jesus is, Lord and Master. Look at it. And they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, again, 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 of course they don't say that on the front end. Hey, we don't believe in the biblical Jesus. They don't, I mean, that would be too obvious, right? They don't say that, but you better believe they do that. By doing an extreme makeover on Jesus. Making Jesus into our image rather than us being transformed as we're supposed to be into his image. Now, some obvious ways 
real quickly, are, are Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Who in their own ways attack the full deity of Christ. Mormons say that Jesus was once a man, he earned godhood, and hey, you can do the same thing, guys. Jehovah's Witnesses, again, attack the full deity of Christ, say he was a created being, different than us, but still a created being. And they do this all the while calling Jesus Savior, right? And so Christians say, you know, we really aren't that far apart. They believe he's Savior. Yeah, but do you know what that means? Or how about this? Roman Catholicism teaches quite clearly that we are not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. Although they'll do a tons of exegetical gymnastics and word tricks to try and obscure that, they still peddle the doctrines of works, of prayers to Mary, right? Of purgatory, of the mass, and all the rest. Health and wealth gospel. They say Jesus came that you could be wealthy and you can be healthy. Funny how everyone who peddles that false doctrine dies. I guess their own theology exploded on them because they didn't remain healthy. Maybe closer to home, more insidious ways people do this is by embracing ideologies regarding ethnic reconciliation that, that redefines sin, does an end run around what Jesus already accomplished, as Pastor Charles pointed out last week, and they do so by saying, Jesus would be for this. As if merely making the assertion, Jesus would be for something, means he would, right? Another thing people do is they embrace lifestyles that squarely contradict the lordship of Jesus Christ, and they use and abuse a few scriptures to justify doing so. Which means, what he is saying right here is not a drill, it is a very present danger. I remember in elementary school, I grew up, it was still the Cold War, we would have Cold War drills where you go down, get under your desk, and then there, you've done tornado drills, and there's fire drills. This is not a drill. He's not saying, if this happens. He's saying, this is happening. It was happening then, it's happening today. And that's why I want to end with several examples, real-time examples, okay? I don't always do this, I don't always use names, but I'm gonna do so here, so that we can know this is not a drill, but an actual emergency going on right now. So if you give me, Grace, just a few more minutes, I wanna share these examples. Can I do that? Andy Stanley, he pastors North, North Point Church just outside Atlanta. It's a con, he's holding, hosting a conference in which gay-affirming, professing Christians are speaking, including two men who are pretending to be married. And, and I make no apology, I didn't slip up, pretend to be married, because only God, the author of marriage, can define what marriage is. Let's just be real. Of course he uses the compassion angle. He says, we're just wanting to serve families with gay children. And by the way, I think, that's a, I think all families ought to be served including families who have children who maybe, for whatever reason, have gone that way. Yes, but the antidote, the remedy offers is absolutely demonic and evil. Well, L. Moeller, I think he's the president of Southern Seminary, also a pastor, wrote an article called, quote, The Train is Leaving the Station, in which he takes everything that Stanley's been saying about the topic and the conference in particular, and he, he, and he puts it under the light of Scripture, which is a good thing to do, right? The lens of Scripture. And what happens is, Stanley then, I guess he got a little riled up, he responded in a sermon which is public. And I want to give you just a few quotes from that sermon. He said, we have not departed biblical Christianity. Maybe Moeller's kind, but we haven't departed biblical Christianity. He goes on to say, we still say that marriage is, we still have a traditional biblical view of marriage. That's what he says, again, crept in, right? Saying the right thing, but not practicing the same thing. And he goes on to say, quote, gay Christians choose a same-sex marriage not because they're convinced it's biblical. They read the same Bible we do. They choose to marry for the same reason many of us do, love, compassion, and family. And in the end, as was the case for all of us, and this is the important thing I want you to hear me say, it's their decision. 
Our decision is, the re- is how we respond to their decision. We draw circles, we don't draw lines, we draw big circles. Now that sounds so clever, doesn't it? And so compassionate, doesn't it? Not lines, circles. We're inclusive. But it's actually quite hateful. Because it's not loving people enough to present them with the truth that would rescue them from the righteous wrath of God and, and the plague of sin on their lives. Now another pastor showed just how over the top Stanley is, though many Christians have just been like, like hook, line, and sinker by that garbage. He said, this other, I hope I wasn't grabbing anything dirty a while ago, okay. Uh Um, He said, to fully understand what Stanley is saying, just substitute cannibalism for homosexuality in your mind as you read the things he has said. So I'm going to take some more quotes from his sermon. I'm going to do just what he said. Instead of homosexuality, I'm going to put in cannibalism. Okay? He says, yes, I believe that not eating people is God's highest and best. I'm glad so. But I won't judge you because I see your heart for Jesus. You love Jesus, and even though I don't believe in eating people like you do, I choose to accept you as you are. And I won't tell you that you need to repent and change your ways. You see, Jesus drew big circles rather than lines. So we welcome you faithful, Jesus-loving cannibals in unto our circle. What do you think about that? Duh. But here's the sad thing in. And remember, who's the letter of Jude for? Is this, was this a pastor's breakout session at a conference? Was this written to a, a pastor's a local group? No, this was written to believers in general. So the sad part is not just that Stanley preached that. The sad part is that he received an ovation, an ovation from his congregation at the end of that sermon. Does it not say in 2 Timothy, Timothy verses, chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, something about uh, bringing, uh, piling up teachers who will tickle your ears, right? And by the way, what's this idea about an ovation after a sermon anyway? no speech. Our ovation is our praise God word, right? It's doxology. And oh, by the way, there is a little something about Jesus drawing lines. Wheat tares, sheep, goats, repentant, unrepentant, believers, unbelievers, and so on. Now, closer to home, I want to give you three examples of people who used to be part of this church. Whoa. I do not want to use this pulpit as a bully pulpit, and I'm not going to. And I, if, if I were to give you the names of the folks, I, I think many of you wouldn't even know them, and I'm not going to, I'm going to keep it super anonymous, but I'm only going to do this because I want to illustrate the point. This is not a fire drill, okay? This is a real and present danger. So there was a person, once part of this church, who recently spoke at a church service where they celebrated God's, quote, multifaceted and creative di- design in creating all kinds of genders and sexual expressions. The glory of LGBTQIA+, end quote, in that service they did at this particular church. Not that far away. Of course, as you can imagine, scriptures were used and abused, right? And people who held to a biblical line were categorized and stereotyped as what, do you think? Intolerant and hateful, all that. The same thing that this person said to me when, because I care for them, reach out to them to warn them and to remind them of the gospel. Another person took issue with a sermon in which I addressed the infection of dangerous ideologies causing Christians to embrace all kinds of crazy unbiblical stuff regarding race and ethnicity and sexuality and justice and all the rest. And this person reached out to me, which I'm actually glad to do for one is I have been wrong, I will be wrong, and I can be wrong. And sometimes we can sharpen each other, right? And for another, to explain where I'm coming from, from Scripture. There's people here, we've had great conversations like that. Thankfully, in this particular case, the Lord nudged me at the last minute to grab my notes. So I listened to this person. I actually, frankly, listened to a bit of a diatribe. Uh, And then when this person was done, I just systematically walked through everything I said in this sermon that this person had issue with. And I said, now, can you tell me 
What was wrong with what I said biblically? You know what the answer was? Well, actually, nothing. I just didn't like the way you said it. Now, what am I supposed to do with that? I think Jude was probably pretty passionate right here, right? And then there's this final example. Lest anyone think I'm trying to target homosexual sin. I'm not. Heterosexual sin as well. Sex outside of marriage. All kinds of sin. There's a guy who used to be at this church. I love dearly. We stayed in contact. We have some pretty vigorous debates sometimes. Uh, he serves at a church down south. He is over the men's ministry, and they have a weekly men's Bible study. They're going through 1 Corinthians, and uh, just recently, he went through the part that talks about uh, church discipline, right, on someone who, who is walking in sin and refused to respond to all the different overtures that a church would make towards that person to, to get right with God. And the guys were kind of blown away because they hadn't heard much teaching like that, but like, yeah, this, this sounds legit. This is in the Bible. But one guy went to the lead pastor, and he told him what they'd been talking about in the men's Bible study, and then he asked the pastor, I don't know what his motives were, but he asked the pastor, he said, hey, you know, uh, why don't we do this? And the lead pastor said, we don't do this because that was just for house churches back then. Like, it doesn't apply today, what he says in 1 Corinthians 6 and so forth. Well, my friend, who's one of the pastors there, got wind of that, and he graciously went to talk to the lead pastor, and he said, hey, I heard that you said that uh, we don't, we're not supposed to do that anymore um, because that was for house churches, but like, this is kind of in the Bible. Why don't we do this? And the lead pastor responded, well, where have you seen this done well? And my friend responded, actually, in the church in Detroit. It's why I became members. I could tell they took discipleship holistically seriously. And then this very telling question by his lead pastor. Yeah, but how, how big is that church? And uh, at that time, we were about, I think, about 150. So they said about 150. And he said, well, that's why they're so small. And by the way, that's a reminder, is it not, that false teachers, drifting teachers, there's a spectrum, compromising teachers are, are more concerned about their glory than God's glory, about the size of their following than faithfulness to the Lord. Now, let me finish with these thoughts. If you struggle in any of the areas that we've touched on today or other areas, I want you to know there's grace for you. Just like with all of us, with all of our struggles, we all have various struggles. And we want to, <laughs> you're not alone. Most of us have doubts or struggles or things that we carry around. So we'd love to walk with you. We'd love to talk with you because according to verse 22, we are to have mercy on those who doubt. And as strong as we want to be as a church and holding to the truth, we also want to be a place where people with struggling and doubts can walk, right? So that we can just interact with them in the truth. And if that is you again, the enemy, if you're in a place like that, the enemy wants you to operate alone so that he can take you away from the Lord. That's what he does. When you sit on those yourselves, the, the, the gravity, the inertia, the reverse momentum of a fallen world and your fallen flesh just take you far. So all of a sudden, you're not even a place to hear any semblance of truth. So if that's you, just, just talk to somebody. Number two, if you are co-signing any of this madness, you need to man up or you need to woman up and you repent. Because according to verse 23, we are to save others by snatching them out of the fire. Number three, if I'm teaching, or anybody else up here, or any venue here, for that matter, unbiblically, please don't give me an ovation. Let's have a conversation, a biblical confrontation. And finally, just a reminder, I'll say it a lot, this call to contend against creepers is a corporate call. It's a call for all of us. We contend better together. I read that a Belgium draft horse can pull 8,000 pounds. That's a lot. I read that two of them together can draw, not just pull, not just two times that 16, but actually three times, 24,000, illustrating the fact that when we're better together, there's more of a pulling power, there's more of a contending power. Then I read that if those two horses are trained together, not just three times what they can normally pull, but four times, two horses, 32,000 pounds they can pull. And I think the point is clear. There is great contending power 
And what we can do together is we seek to be faithful to the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's contend together against creepers and not go the way of the first church of Northampton. Amen?